0: I think we grossed a million dollars uh, in our first year of business which you know we were 22 23 at the time and and that was phenomenal.
1: My name is Felix here, and I'm the host of Shopify Masters, a weekly podcast powered by Shopify, the easiest way to sell online, in-person, and anywhere in between. Each week, we invite entrepreneurs like you to share what they've learned growing successful e-commerce businesses. In this episode, you'll learn why you need to invest in quality control if you want to build a multi-decade brand, why there's good revenue and bad revenue, and how to tell the difference, and how to get big brands like the Wu-Tang Clan and the Simpsons to collaborate with you before our show i wanted to chat about the storefront signage maker it's an easy way for any brick and mortar shop owners to let your customers know that you are open available for curbside pickup delivery online information and more customize any message you like automatically create a qr code for your store then print it off from home it's easy and simple to use no design experience required create a sign yourself at shopify.com signage Today I'm joined by Meddy Farsi from State Bicycle. State Bicycle creates direct-to-consumer bikes that are simple, stylish, and affordable and were started in 2009 and based out of Tempe, Arizona. Welcome, Eddie. Hi, thanks for having me. So you've always had a lifelong passion for bikes. What, what made you decide to funnel that passion into a business? Yeah, so um,
0: uh, both myself and the other co-founder here, Reza, my brother, uh, grew up around bikes, uh, cycling. It was just something that... Uh, We were exposed to as kids, like everyone else, almost uh, just riding bikes around. But then, you know, as we got older, we became fans of the sport. Uh, Lucky enough to travel to France and watch Lance Armstrong in his prime, um, you know, win the Tour de France. So uh, we spent a couple summers in Europe uh, watching bike racing, and it's just something that we loved. Um, And, um, Right around uh, 2007, 2008, uh, we started noticing a lot of our friends were riding fixed gear bikes and in the process of wanting to kind of get those style of bikes that were really simple, really cool, customizable, fun projects to work on, we realized there wasn't really a lot of options, and the options that were there were not affordable. Um, So kind of went down uh, the path in a rabbit hole of of figuring out how we could um, start building our own bikes and eventually uh, starting a business.
1: Got it. So was this the first business that you both started, or do you both have experience starting businesses in the past?
0: It was not the first business, so um, both he and I uh, started a business. I mean, we have had kind of a lot of different things. We're just really entrepreneurial by spirit. Um, we initially were doing just, you know, printed T-shirts, like a lot of people, I feel like, get mm-hmm. their first kind of business experience printing and selling T-shirts. Um, that kind of evolved into importing and selling the equipment to print t-shirts. Um, if we found that that was more like lucrative than, uh, actually printing the shirts ourselves. So we went, got into the machinery, basically enabling other people who were starting out and wanting to start their own business, get the equipment. So, um, that's what that business evolved into. And then. And um, completely unrelated, uh, but yeah, we we were prior to starting the bike business, uh, we were importing mid-century um, style furniture, and that business actually uh, was pretty successful right out of the gate. Um, I think we grossed a million dollars uh, in our first year of business, which, you know, we were 22, 23 at the time, which, and, and that was phenomenal. We were really excited about that. And, um, we really started the, the bike business as a, a side project, as like a passion product project. Um, really, we just wanted to kind of get some cool looking bikes for ourselves. And, um, you know, uh, once, we we started it. It kind of just snowballed, and eventually we did, um, you know, discontinue uh, selling furniture, and we've been focused on selling bikes full time for uh, just over ten years now. We just had our ten year anniversary of State Bicycle Company, so um, yeah, things are going well, and and we really enjoy uh, the business that we're in.
1: Yeah, so it sounded like you carried a lot of experiences from starting from selling T-shirts into then importing machinery, then importing furniture, and then eventually starting state bicycles. It sounded like you were at least using some experience that you learned along the way. Can you share some of those things? Some of the biggest lessons that you learned from each business that helped you get get the, get things off the ground sooner or more successfully with subsequent businesses.
0: Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think, you know, I could kind of go one by one and and give maybe like a little anecdote or or maybe something that, you know, I'm sure there's dozens of lessons that I've learned from each experience and we're still learning. But, you know, from the T-shirt printing business, I would think that. You know, we learned to be really dynamic. Um, that was our first experience with any type of online business. And, you know, most of the sales were through eBay at that time, which is like the most predominant, like third party platform. And like, I mean, this predates like Amazon's pinnacle by, by many, many years. So we were selling shirts on that. And, you know, we were just really moving quick. If some kind of topical, thing happened in politics or sports we would you know make those types of shirts and just uh learn to be really flexible and adapt to situations so we could capitalize on uh like whatever was hot at the moment whatever was current and relevant um moving on to kind of the t-shirt printing business obviously now we're dealing with more uh, t-shirt equipment uh printing equipment business i should say um now we're dealing with a much higher price point product. It's not you know a twenty dollars t shirt. We're talking about equipment that is uh, you know sometimes in the thousands of dollars, and these are customers that rely on that equipment to um, to really power their business. So they can't afford for something to go wrong with the, that equipment or um, you know any delays when they place an order. They might need that equipment right away because they're going to an event. Uh, et cetera. So with that type of uh, business, really, I think the big takeaway was really focusing on quality control, especially when you're selling a product that people rely on for their livelihood. Um, the quality and reliability of
1: whatever you're selling needs to be top notch. And that was something that... Yeah, but let me pause for a second. What are, some, what are some ways that you are able to do quality control on the products that you're selling?
0: So on this on this particular product, um, you know, we did have some hard lessons. Uh, you know, we we when we were selling the equipment, we were importing. You know, very inexperienced at that time. Uh, again, still in college. Uh, just fresh out of college times and we were kind of going with vendors that maybe we didn't vet as well as we wanted. Um, there were delays in the product and then, you know, what type of service and support they provided to us after the fact, um, was really not well, um, investigated. We were kind of just moving, um, quickly in order to to start a business without doing great due diligence and that's a lesson i think that we've learned and been able to um carry over into our our current business state bicycle company where you know um quality of a bicycle it's a moving um people use it uh for transportation they need something reliable and that's a lesson we learned you know Seven, eight years prior to make sure that before we release any product, everything is really well tested, backed by a great warranty, and our suppliers um, understand what kind of quality we're demanding so
1: and when it comes to quality control, is it something that you kind of define as what is the quality, or do you have to rely on other like experts or professionals to help you design? the checks, I guess, that need to go into place to determine if it's good enough or not good enough, but if it meets your qual- standard of quality to go to a customer?
0: Um, with our bicycles, everything is uh, gone through a pretty rigorous uh, testing um, protocol. And that's through the factory directly um, overseas and also before any product is released, it is tested here. So we work with a variety of writers, um, depending on the product, might be working with engineers in order to kind of not only um, design, but also test in real life conditions to kind of troubleshoot any particular pain points that might be going going on. So um, it really is by a variety of, of methods that we, that we use, but, um, the testing is rigorous and that's why sometimes, you know, it might take us two years to release a new bike, um, just because, uh, of all the different series of question uh, testing, test riding afterwards. And then later on, um, if we do notice that something's uh, needs to be changed, going back and, and testing and retesting, so that's kind of where we're at with the bikes.
1: Got it. So when you're first getting involved in other businesses in the past, you're looking at speed. How do we get revenue coming in? How do we start selling this as quickly as possible? Now you understand the value of pausing and making sure that you're releasing something that is high quality. So uh, I guess what kind of advantages is that? What, what, not necessarily what kind of advantage but what does that do for your business if you invest in quality control?
0: Oh, I mean, I think that especially, um, you know, I think there's probably a lot of young companies listening, and if you want to be a brand that lasts 5, 10, 15, 20 years, quality and and, uh, reputation kind of go hand in hand. So your brand is really only as good as the reputation and the quality of your products. And we're not looking at our customers in the sense that they're going to buy, you know, one time from us and we'll kind of never see them again. We want to bring people in that buy a bike from us, they buy their next bike from us, they buy, you know, maybe one day they buy a bike for their kid from us. Um, and then they're, they're also out on the streets and they're highly recommending our product um, through word of mouth, etc. And I think it all starts with the quality of your products. If your website looks great, if your pictures look great, if the, the product looks great, um, but the quality isn't there to support it, um, ultimately you're not going to go very far, especially with a product like ours uh, with a bicycle. And that word of mouth and that trust uh, and that customer experience that you build is so crucial to companies, especially when starting out. Um, it's very expensive to attract new customers through you know, digital marketing. It can be. It can be expensive. But you know, one of the easiest ways to, to get your, your company off the ground, your product off the ground, Is by developing that word of mouth and it is essentially free as long as you're putting in the work to make sure that you are delivering or exceeding the promise you make with your to your customers when they click that buy button.
1: Hmm. Now, now, I think, uh, so I guess what, what are some of the biggest lessons that, that gave you an advantage when starting state bicycle company, especially in the early days, like in that first year, using all of the knowledge, using all the experience you had from launching the other past businesses, what gave you kind of an accelerated path towards success when you started a state bicycle company?
0: Well, I, I mean, I, I already mentioned that we did have a background in importing and with the, the way that, um, the bicycle industry is, you know, most of the manufacturing is done overseas. So being able to kind of navigate uh, supply chains, whether that would be in Taiwan or China, we do use both here at State Bicycle Company, that was really, really um, crucial. So uh, having that experience was great. But then just on the, um, on the uh, marketing side of things, you know, um, all all of the other businesses I mentioned were online businesses as well. Um, so, knowing kind of some do's and don'ts, learning you know uh, what kind of revenue is good revenue, what kind of revenue is bad revenue. So, for example, you know with the furniture business I mentioned, we were doing a million dollars per year uh, per year right out of the gate, but um, there were times where our advertising budget was, was not in a great place to where we were spending money and, and losing money many months um, because you know uh, just the customer acquisition costs were high. So just learning about keeping your costs in check and all those things um, and, and how to best utilize certain marketing channels, etc. as we went... Um, was was a good lesson we learned prior to going live with State Bicycle, which has by far been our longest-lived business thus far. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, I think when it comes to online advertising, if you don't know what you're doing, it's a very quick way to basically lose all your money. Are there any other, again, through your experience, have there been any other kind of hidden costs that maybe entrepreneurs don't spend enough time thinking about during the early days of their business or before they even start one? Like, what are some other hidden costs that have either cost you in actual cash or cost you in time or lost resources that, uh, that, you know, you, that maybe new entrepreneurs might not be as aware of?
0: Absolutely. So I think like this, this is, again, another big lesson we learned with the furniture business and it kind of all bundles in with quality control. But um, with the furniture business, we were dealing with a lot of really particular clients. There were a lot of uh, real estate people, for example, that were using our furniture to stage houses. Um, there were there were customers that were spending quite a bit of money per per cart and you know if you are dealing with a, a little bit of a more affluent clientele, typically speaking I find that their their standards are, are very high so um, again you know some of the ways you can really really cut into your margins and cut into your profit is making sure that uh, you're, you're especially when you're you're shipping a large item making sure that the packaging is really done well everything is is tightened up so that when the product gets there it isn't damaged um, that was a probably a, a, a kind of a specific lesson to the furniture but you know minimizing any type of return or replacement cost because um, you know things are missing or things get damaged and routed uh for shipping, that that's a quick way to, to eat into your margins if if that stuff isn't all buttoned up.
1: Mm-hmm. And you mentioned that this started as a passion project while you were, the state bicycle company that is, started as a passion project while you were uh, both still running the the furniture company. What when did you guys start taking it more seriously? Like, what was happening? Do you remember that moment where you both were like, "This is something we might want to spend more of our time on, shifting our attention towards that passion project"? Than you're at that time, you're currently running businesses.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, we we got our first um, batch of bikes in March 2010, and it was 140 bikes. And at this point, we had decided we were going to move forward and, and start selling these bikes. But really it was just kind of a response to how quickly we were able to sell them. Um, the enthusiasm we were getting from the local community around Tempe um, when people would see our bikes, inquire about them and just how interested people were uh in the product so um that first hundred set of 140 bikes sold out very quickly and at that point i think we realized that um you know this could be a really viable business and also something that we could really enjoy so we kept reinvesting and getting more bikes and again and kind of repeat the process they were selling out um we were building a website and, and dedicating we just were you know every shipment dedicating more and more resources to it to the point where we realized, you know, we should be doing this full-time. I would say about a year and a half, two years in, um, was when we, like, ultimately phased out of the furniture business,
1: and, and when it was a passion project, just taking and just 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 getting off the ground, I think a lot of people out there might have day jobs or maybe another business and are starting a business on the side. How much time did it take to start a start a state bicycle company in the early days? Like how much time did you have to dedicate towards it to get it off the ground?
0: I, so I I did mention that we were we we did get our first shipment of bikes um, in March 2010. Um, that said, I mean, we were initially looking at, you know, different samples of bikes. It, it started with just wanting to get bikes for ourselves back in 2008. So it was like a two-year period between getting the bikes, then realizing that, um, you know, this is something that we could potentially start selling and marketing and, and designing and developing to, then really starting to go back and vet the factories and meet with component suppliers and handpick all the different parts, um, that were going on the bike, um, placing more samples, et cetera. Like all of that was about a two year, um, period. So, um, it wasn't something quick, (laughs) uh, but it was something we were able to balance while running our own business. And in fact, you know, the fact that we did have our own business probably allowed us to have a little bit more flexibility with how we were to dedicate our times um, versus, Mm -hmm. you know, if we did have to be at, you know, a different workplace or school um, during periods of time. Um, And also we were young. So both of us were, were single, unmarried, uh, I should say Um, no kids. um, So uh, I know that it is possible, obviously, to start a business when you are older and, and wiser and have more experience, but oftentimes it, it's good to just kind of act on your ideas when uh, you're first starting out just because there is a little bit less responsibility Um on your shoulders and, and if you, if something doesn't work out, um, you have very little to lose when you're first starting out. So I, I always, I always say like when you're young and, and you have, uh, very little responsibility is a, is a great time to, to dip your foot in the water of entrepreneurship.
1: Definitely. Now you mentioned the 140 bikes that you first brought in. sold very quickly, how would you gain those customers? How are you selling those in that initial uh, run of bikes that you guys purchased?
0: Yeah, so and, like right out of the gate, it was like eBay, Craigslist, word of mouth, like type of thing. It was um, very friends and family. Um, these are the people that kind of helped supported us. Most of it locally. We weren't sh- really shipping because um, we hadn't even like built out a website for it. So that was like the initial um, push, and then. Um, next it then it became our website, um, et cetera. Also message boards. There, like there was like a ton of like fixed gear and bike message boards that we'd kinda like go on and like, Hey, we like, you know, are coming out with this bike, here's the details, like send us PayPal if you if you want something. So um, yeah, it was just kinda like hustling and, and, and selling bikes like by any any way possible. Um to kind of just get get it off the ground.
1: Yeah, I was going to ask. You know, it was this was that initial goal of those hundred forty bikes. Was it to earn a profit, or is it to validate that there was a market here? What was the the goal of uh, initially when you guys got that hundred forty bikes? What did you want to What was the goal of of um, selling those bicycles?
0: I think we were just like curious to see if this was like a viable like revenue source. Like on this on the side of like everything else we we're doing. Like I think the initial idea was like, hey, we're like making a decent living selling furniture, but let's like supplement our income like selling selling bikes and see how it goes. But we didn't necessarily like foresee um, it being you know like a full fledged company. I think until you know several months or even years after the the initial batch.
1: Got it. Now I'm on your website I'm looking at some of the best sellers and they range anywhere from three hundred to I think like four hundred and sixty dollars. Do you remember how much it was priced for in the early days? Like how much did you price though that initial production?
0: Yeah, the first the first set of bikes we have are are now like known as our forty one thirty line and they were four twenty nine. Now they're four fifty nine. So in ten years we've made a ton of improvements, um, and, and kept the price like relatively the same, um, 30 bucks more than, than yeah. it was before. But the, pr- yeah, that line of bikes is kind of been a staple in our, in our lineup, um, since inception. And, and obviously now we have a lot more offerings, but yeah, the very first style of bike was our 4130, um, fixed gear bike.
1: How, what do you what do you credit to give it to, to keeping that price stable over the you know last ten years? I mean, I'm sure inflation probably would have increased it more than than that. What were you, you able to do to keep the price uh, the same price from the beginning?
0: Well, I mean, as we as we scale, we're obviously able to um, you know um, make some efficiencies in our supply chain. Whether that's you know instead of ordering uh, two hundred cranks, we can order you know 2000 cranks at once and that tends to drive the price down and and plan orders um year, you know for the whole year in advance and again you know committing to larger numbers helps bring the pricing down so um that's that's really like the way and and uh you know any any bike that we put out we want it to be a good value so um ultimately uh, we want to be affordable uh, for our customers so that we can get more people on the road. So providing affordable options has always been one of our missions. In fact, that's that's kind of the genesis of the company um, to go back. like my brother and I wanted to get fixed gear bikes and we couldn't find a place. Where we could just go in and buy an affordable, good-looking fixed gear bike. Everything was like kind of piece by piece, and by the time you bought the frame, wheels, crank, etc., we were looking at you know well over a thousand dollars to get into something, uh, a project that you know we didn't know how long we were gonna we were gonna um, you know stick with it or whether we were gonna enjoy these type of bikes or whatever it may be. So uh, and and we were you know, in our early 20s. So we didn't have a ton of money to spend Mm -hmm. on that type of thing. So that's really was the genesis of the company. And um, still to this day, most of our customers are, you know, mid to late 20s, a lot of college students. So uh, we understand people want something that is nicer than what you would see in kind of like a big box store, but also they don't have the type of money to spend on some of these other bikes that are out there that are 1500 know $1, $2,000, 3000 that when you go into a bike shop, you might see.
1: Got it. Now, when you were first selling them on eBay, Craigslist and just hustling to get them out, you didn't have a brand at the time. So how did you sell basically like a bicycle from a, essentially an unproven company at that time? How did you get people to, to give you guys a shot and purchase your bicycles?
0: Yeah, I, I think... Um, you know, initially it, it was, it was difficult. Uh, the first batch of bikes were like purposely unbranded just because we didn't want to put like a logo on there that people like didn't know or maybe they didn't trust. So, um, we really tried to translate. Uh, our quality and our details through what we like to call like visual communication, which is really basically photos and videos. And I think our attention to detail on those particular um, methods of communication translated really well for people and they understood that, hey, like spikes look great. Um, you know, it's checking all the boxes in terms of specs. Uh, that, that, you know, similar bikes might be, uh, but the price is really good, um, maybe half the price of a normal one, we'll go ahead and try it. But you're right, we didn't have a brand name. We we're relatively unproven. Um, I mentioned, you know, forums, Reddit, message boards. There were a lot of people that were questioning us and questioning the quality. Um, so just being able to, as an owner, go on and and talk directly to customers and answer any hesitations or any questions that people had and being really active. Like I wouldn't even let like, you know, one comment on a social media post or one comment question on eBay, wherever it be like nothing went unanswered, like being really active and really transparent I think was really critical. And then the second thing, which we actually did pretty early on was in 2011 we we connected with a couple of local riders here who were really active in the fixed gear scene, um, and really talented racers. And we sponsored these guys. And so they were riding our bikes. And at that time there was a, a big, big, big race in Los Angeles. And, and it would, it coincided with the LA marathons, which is right around St. Patrick's day in March every year. So, these guys are called the Wolfpack Hustle. Um, the night before the marathon at like 2, 3 a.m., while all the streets in L.A. are closed for 26 miles, they're, they're setting up the barricades for the, the marathon early the next morning, they would throw a bike race uh, and crash that course. And you would get two, three, four thousand 4,000 riders out at this um, on fixed gear bikes just, just doing this kind of like illegal street race um at at two o'clock in the morning um and and it was great like you could ride your bike in LA no traffic barricaded streets so we went there in 2011 and basically uh relatively unheard of maybe outside of like Tempe and we took first second and third place like that year which like Everyone was just kind of like, who are these guys? And I think that was another way that kind of just like put us on the map because at that point, you can't really knock the product. Like we, we swept the podium with, again, like an unknown bike brand. Um, and I think we, we started seeing a lot of momentum after that. So, any type of endorsement or for this type of product, any type of endorsement, Um, obviously, uh, influencers, ambassadors, people that are out using the product and showing the performance and proving the performance. I think that can be really critical. Um, for this type of product and probably a lot of other products too.
1: It reminds me of the origin story of of Nike. Sounds similar, where there's sponsorships and led to the to the to the basically coming out onto the stage for, for, for your brand. So when you are, you, is this the strategy you take today to sponsor athletes?
0: Yeah. So, um, actually to this day, one of those three guys is still on our team, um, 10 years later. And one of my, he he's, turns out he's like one of our best my best friends and we use him in a ton of content and video marketing still um but yeah we have a team of uh of uh nine uh male and female riders and we do anywhere from six to 12 races around uh around every year around the country around the world, and. Um, that's definitely a part of our strategy. Not every single one of our customers is necessarily a racer and not every single one of our customers is necessarily interested in like racing style bikes. But um, having that as something that appeals to a certain customer is certainly something that we value and it lends a bit of a face um, to the brand as well. Um, our, our race team does.
1: What mm. what makes a successful sponsorship in terms of bringing more business? Like, what's the ideal situation? Either for, I guess, from both perspectives, from from the brand and then the athlete. Like, what makes an ideal successful sponsorship?
0: I think it's going to be boiled down to someone who is like authentic and genuinely likes you as a company, and genuinely like embraces like your ideals. Um, I I mean, we've we've gone down the road of you know trying to get really, really accomplished riders and even like paying them to ride our bikes and and they get great results. but ultimately they were in it for like a paycheck and those types of relationships, I think are, are usually short-lived. You need to find someone that again embraces your company ideals, whatever that may be. Um in our, in our case, we want someone who um, can perform, but also someone who knows how to like relax and have a good time and, and have fun while riding because ultimately riding a bike needs to be fun. So we look at each athlete holistically like they they don't need to be maybe an a plus writer but as long as they're you know a, a very good writer or a decent writer and they have you know an a plus personality um that that tends to kind of go a far way for us so that's that's kind of what we're looking at um and someone that we know we can be with long term i think building that familiarity with your audience. Whether that's you know through videos, through your social media pages, whatever it may be, building that familiarity long term um, is important. So if you're you know have have some kind of sponsorship or some kind of ambassador, and 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 those p- types of people are cycling uh, through and and getting having a lot of turnover, I don't I don't think that's really the best way to do things. So trying to build long term relationships.
1: Right. So, so once you do have a sponsorship with, with an athlete or whatever industry you're in, you have a sponsor that or rather you're sponsoring someone. What are, what are some ways to kind of extend that sponsorship in terms of using it for marketing, using it for content? Like what are some ways that you've been able to uh, take the sponsorship and actually use it more in terms of uh, getting more engagement from your audience or getting content out to them?
0: Definitely. So, um, there's like a number of ways we will use uh, our our race team and our riders. So, first way is obvious, like going out to races, you know, winning. Going up on the podium, wearing our clothing, and, and 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 having representation at key events, that's that's critical. But I think, as I said, not everyone's in racing. Not everyone's going to pay attention to that. So that only takes you so far. Um, another way that we use our our riders are again as ambassadors. So we throw we throw our own events, and they're not races. They're just maybe we'll do a twenty minute mile ride to kind of just get people out on their bikes or even a longer ride. We do a ride from Phoenix to Tucson and having our riders there um, to be experts for people, whether they have, you know, a flat tire and they need some help or just a question about tips and tricks. um, Having, having people with experience that are knowledgeable um, athletes is really critical. Um, Another thing that we do with our, uh, riders is is a ton of content. So, whether that's using them in our photos um, for for product, whether it's clothing or or bicycles, um, these are people that are going to be comfortable on the bike and be really uh, authentic, and they use the bike. So that's what we try to portray in our our photos. We also have a really fun. Um, web series where we ride bikes up a mountain called riding fixed up Mountains with pros and we pair one of our athletes with a professional cyclist so this is like a tour de france you know professional caliber cyclist and it's an interview show so we people can get to know our riders that way as well and, and we use them really as uh kind of a face of the company um in that sense
1: hey Real quick, if you're enjoying the show, please leave us a review on iTunes. Let us know what you think or what you'd like to hear more of. Now, let's get back to the interview. Got it. Now, speaking of partnerships, uh, you also credit your success to collaborations. Uh, you had collaborations with Wu-Tang, The Simpsons. Can you say a little bit more about what the these collaborations entail?
0: Yeah, definitely. So I think that... Uh, again, one of the things that makes our company unique from most traditional bike companies is, is our partnerships. Um, myself and my brother started this company. We didn't really come from a, a bike background. And, um, you know, so we wanted to build it, bring in a lot of our influences. From just our, our personality, and I think that shows in the company. So that one of the things we're really um, interested in is kind of streetwear and sneaker culture. And in that realm, you see a lot of collaborations and co-branded items. And um, that's one of the things that sets us apart. And it's something that you know the twenty-year-old to thirty-year-old customer really appreciates too. They want a bike that is special and limited edition and reflects their personality and their interests. So you mentioned, um, we did a collaboration with the Wu Tang clan that was centered around a 20 year anniversary of their first album, um, in 2013. And that bike did phenomenal, phenomenal for, for us. We've collaborated with clothing brands. Um, we've collaborated collaborated with breweries. We've done bikes, you know, with bottle openers on it that are are themed um, for a brewery. So we've gotten a lot of collaborations. Um, the Simpsons was probably our highest profile one thus far. And that was a, that was a big uh, one we did back in 2016. And we have some more coming out um, this year. So I think that's going to always be part of our DNA. It gives us inspiration to design around. It gives us more talking points about our brand. It brings in uh, a new audience. So whoever we're partnering with, it's something that we can maybe introduce our brand to their audience. And it also gives our audience uh, something new and fresh to, uh, to purchase.
1: Mm-hmm. So obviously some of the, some big brands you collaborate with, how did you, how, how did these partnerships and collaborations come about? Like, How did you, who do you talk to? How did you pitch them? Like what was involved in getting agreement essentially from these brands to collaborate with you?
0: Sure. Yeah. There There's a number of different ways. Um, you know, it can be, you know, if for someone, and, and this might be kind of like giving advice, you know, for someone who's just like starting out, you know, trying to go and get that big, big collaboration, you know, with, you know, your favorite sports team or your favorite, you know, Disney character or whatever it may be, it might be a little bit daunting. But, you know, the first ones we did were like really organic and really like, hey, I kind of, you know, follow an up and coming clothing brand on Instagram and we, we exchange, um, exchange information. And I realized, you know, your customers and my customers, Probably are about the same people. There's a lot of overlap here. Let's do a fun project, and and it can be a, something as simple as that. Um, the Wu Tang bike project, believe it or not. Like I was walking a bike through a trade show, uh, through Agenda, the streetwear trade show. I got it was a black and gold bike, and I got tapped on the shoulder by uh, Power, who was one of the original producers of Wu Tang Clan. He said, like, I need that bike and I want oh to do a Wu-Tang bike. Like so it was just kind of like right place, right time on yeah. that one. Um and then like something you know more high profile like um The Simpsons, like that was going and dealing with 20th Century Fox at the time. Now they're Disney, but that was dealing with 20th Century Fox. And like that was like a straight up licensing deal where, you know, we are having to come up with projections and, and royalty numbers and, and minimum guaranteed payments. And that one was a little bit more, um, like one way where, you know, they're sending us assets and we have to get, certain things approved. Um, and it's like a licensing deal the same way, you know, you might buy, uh, you know, a candy bar at the store that has a a picture of, of your favorite, you know, cartoon character. So that was like a street licensing deal. So we've done them in a number of different ways. And, um, you know, there's, there's licensing expos in in Las Vegas and New York, where you can you can go and, and find brands to partner with, but if you're just starting up, uh, I think the best advice I could give is try to find a company that is in a similar stage as you. Like it's going to be very difficult for uh, a, a brand new brand to work with someone like Nike, for example, because they're you know multi billion dollar company. Um, but find someone in a similar stages you and, and that has a similar customer base and someone that you're not competing with someone that you complement with and organically build that there and I think that's going to be like the most successful way uh, to do it ultimately the best way to win any collaboration is that both parties need to feel that um, something is being added to their brand it has to be a two-way
1: street. Right. I think one of the biggest benefits you mentioned was that you get to put your, your company, your brand, your product in front of a new audience. How do you, how do you recommend, what, what has worked for you to turn a customer that has come from a collaboration into a long-term customer, essentially turn them from a, a collaboration customer into a state bicycle company customer?
0: I mean, I think that our, our products by nature are not just like a one-time purchase so with any bike uh you're going to want to change it modify it and at the very least maintain it over time so that's things like uh getting new tires replacing the chain every so often maybe you started off with one saddle but now you're riding more you want a more comfortable saddle you want a lighter saddle and we're always evolving as riders, and we're always evolving as a company. So we're always going to be having new options and new ways to style and and basically tune up your bike and make it perform differently or make it perform better. Um, and and the way that we communicate with our customers is through you know various email flows, um, reminders, you know certain time after purchase you know maybe it's time to check up on all these points that that you know are wear and tear just like a car um you need to maintain it every certain number of miles so we do have checkups with that and then we try to bring you know constantly be engaging our customers with um our social media channels and our youtube channel um, so that you know, we're always doing something—a content piece, a giveaway, whatever it may be—so that we're top of mind, and hopefully, um, it isn't that just one-time purchase, and and you're you're done with us.
1: Now, you mentioned that these collaborations are typically limited run. How do you decide what what, what that means? How do you project how much how many uh, you'll be producing for a collaboration?
0: It's a little bit. Uh, of a conversation depending on the partner. And then also like an internal decision and conversation depending on kind of what the scope is. So, you know, again, for something like a big licensing deal, let's say I wanted to go do star Wars bikes um, with Disney uh, that would take a pretty considerable uh, commitment on our part. So, um, you know, some partners have certain minimums, certain goals that they want to achieve. Um, on the other side, some partners like want to keep things very, very limited. So I think it's just a matter of having that partner and discussing with your partner what are like the goals and the outcomes. If it's, you know, just to kind of get some press and, and do something fun, maybe uh, the, the, the commitment is lower. If it's something that you know think it going to be really big if the commitment's higher, but it it's usually a conversation that we have on a case by case basis, depending on you know multiple factors
1: mm-hmm, and you mentioned that one of the the I guess the metrics that you look at are returning customers either buy more for themselves or buy for for others how often for a product like this, how often do customers come back and and buy like what what is that that timeline between that first purchase and subsequent purchases?
0: We start seeing subsequent purchases, um, you know, on a typical average, about sixty days afterwards. So again, that I think gives people, and I'm not saying they're buying another bike, but you know, they might come back and you know buy new bar tape or change something out. It gives people an opportunity to change something out, but. You know, typically speaking, uh, a customer of ours is buying close to making four purchases with us lifetime, um, which is great. I mean, that means someone's is. you know initially buying a bike, then you know they might be changing their tires, their wheels, and most of our parts are interchangeable. So even if you know they buy a black bike, let's say, and then six months or a year later, we come out with you know. Their favorite sports team, bike color, or whatever it may be, they can buy the frame and even get that parts um, swapped out. And you know, bikes keep their value pretty well too, uh, especially when we're talking about limited things. So it's not uncommon for people to buy new parts, sell their old ones. I myself am always in that bucket. I'm always tinkering with all of my bikes. So um, it very much is. a a fun project uh as much as it is uh something that you ride i think part of the fun uh similar to kind of like tuner cars um and there's other other hobbies like this like part of the fun is just like tinkering playing around with your bike changing it up to to customize your ride
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, how do you stay top of mind so that when they are thinking about making another purchase or uh, thinking about adding, swapping parts out, how do you make sure that you're, again, staying top of mind and constantly kind of engaged with them? Like, what is the, the the marketing that happens after they become a customer?
0: We do have a series of of drips, uh, email drips. So once, once, if you're opted into our email list, you know, after a certain amount of time, you'll get a reminder, a follow-up, how's your bike? Uh, oftentimes, we'll send out, you know, thank you and uh, coupon codes that are specifically targeted to certain accessories and parts that complement uh, the style of bike that you bought um, based off of what previous um, customers bought. Uh, and then we're always, you know, through our newsletters, we're always uh, releasing fun and new product that we're we're enjoying um some of it's seasonal but stuff that we're enjoying and stuff that we're using ourselves as writers and those are kind of our recommendations to our clients so um the email platform we use is Klaviyo, uh and and i find that um it's really good uh as a plug-in to shopify for these types of campaigns and this type of marketing and um you can get it as specific and as granular as you want to. I don't know that we're the most advanced and sophisticated at doing it, but um, you know, for a novice or someone who wants to get really, really specific in the types of of emails and targeting, um, that's a great platform.
1: Any other apps that you use to help power the business?
0: Um, we use a series of bold apps um, for for. You know, add-ons and product customizations I mentioned. uh, You know, when a a customer buys a bike, it's not the only thing they'll need. Um, There's a lot of accessories and parts and upgrades and swaps that you can make. So we're using uh, the product options from Bold. Uh, I think that one's probably like a staple in our in our quiver. There, Um, that's the main one. On occasion, we'll we'll have some kind of email pop-up form or, or header banner app, usually running around holiday time or around certain promotions, so that's another one that's good. We've used Viral Sweep um, for contests and promotions, so if you're running kind of like a, a giveaway, let's say we want to give away a bike, you can run email, um, Sign ups there, but that app also like people can get extra entries into your contest if they share it or follow your social media accounts. So if you want to drive more follows to your social media accounts, I really like viral sweep. Um, I think those are kind of like the big ones that we're using, um, in terms of like sales and
1: marketing. Mm-hmm. Awesome. So statebicycle.com is a website and we've spoken already about the lessons that you learn from business to, to each business. What about, what has been the biggest lesson that you learned within running state bicycle? Maybe within the last year that you want to apply the lessons from this year.
0: I think just being persistent, um, is really critical. So, I mean, our, our industry last year was hit pretty hard. Uh, this is going back to like late 18 and and most of 2019 our industry was hit pretty hard with the uh the 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 tariffs um and the whole trade war uh and um you know we were very persistent and resilient and we were able to shift all of our production from china to taiwan Um, later on, we were able to petition the government and actually get a trade exemption, a tariff exemption, um, from the trade department. So, uh, our bikes were excluded from the tariffs. We were the first bike company to get that exemption. Um, and and the exemption was for like our entire industry, not just for our company. So that was a big win for us last year. And, um, yeah, just, you know, a lot of, I think a lot of, People, your first uh, instinct once things get tough is is to abandon something, or you know, just kind of accept, like, oh, we're going to be like paying these tariffs, or you know, this is going to be the way it's got to be. But um, we did everything in our power to kind of make sure we could continue our business. Um, the way we wanted to run it, and the way, even though you know some of the things we did took a lot of bandwidth, and uh, you know the the trade tariff was, you know, a complete long shot. We took the long shot, and it and it panned out for us. So, um, yeah, I think just persistence and and being able to um, stick with with things when when times are tough. I, I I'm sure there's a lot of businesses that are weathering storms right now as I talk to you during this whole COVID pandemic. And I think, um, you know, for those, those people that are listening, like find a way to adapt or, 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 you know, make, make the best out of the situation because um, persistence will ultimately pay off.
1: Yeah. I think, I think that the key here is that it's not just persistence that you've, you've employed, but it's persistence with, creative problem solving, right? Because you can be persistent and kind of keep on charging on the same path that's not leading you anywhere. But you guys were clearly open-minded and explored all the different options. So I think that's the same case with that we're in today where it seems like the businesses that are thriving or at least uh, sustaining themselves have taken that same approach which is that they're persistent. They're not banning their business but find new ways to adapt. So I think that's great advice. So again, statebicycle.com and thank you so much for coming on and sharing your experience and knowledge, Medhi.
0: Thanks for having me. Appreciate it.
1: Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Shopify Masters, the e-commerce podcast for ambitious entrepreneurs powered by Shopify.